This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. Our guest today on Music Buzz is Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Since he burst from the blues clubs of Louisiana onto the global music scene, Kenny has twisted his classic songs into bold new shapes each night on stage. The Louisiana-born guitarist has sold millions of albums while shining a light on the rich blues of the past and forging ahead with his own modern twist on a classic sound. Welcome today to the Music Buzz podcast, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The first time I saw you play was at a farm aid in 2002 in Pittsburgh, and I was blown away by your playing that day. It was 20 years ago, so I guess you were about 25, but you were playing with the depth of feeling and a technical prowess of a musician decades beyond your years. And you'd already had a spectacular 10-year career before that or more, so just truly amazing. I wanted to talk a little bit about the recent projects that you've done. I really like your 2019 record. I was able to listen to the whole record yesterday. The Traveler, for our listeners out there. The first cut is a classic blues rocker, woman like you. I mean, if you like blues rock, 
folks. You're going to dig this one. Very cool tune. I Want You Too is another great one, too. And I love the way what you did with the hook line. It flipped me out the first time. It's like you're playing just a little behind the beat on it. And then the second time when you repeat it, it's that triplet on the repeat. It was like, whoa, so catchy. Very cool. Cool idea. And a ridiculous solo on that, by the way. Thank you. That's a common theme for you, Kenny Wayne, just so you know, ridiculous solos. But that's a good thing, though. It's not a bad thing. It was out of necessity, you know? Like, in the beginning of my career, I was just a teenage kid that played guitar. I didn't even sing lead vocals at that point. So it's like I had to bring it in the guitar solos if I was going to get anybody's attention. You sure have. With your father featured in the documentary, and it was fascinating to see how you did become noticed and how many people were saying, who is this 12 year old? <laughs> like it was very impressive. I watched that over the weekend myself, the documentary. And I think from my perspective, I've talked to your dad several times and, and he's definitely, you know, hands-on and there's no doubt it's a family business and shout out to everybody that works so hard for you, Kristen included everybody with you guys. And I'm not just saying this because you're on the call, but I mentioned earlier working with you on shows every year is because you guys, your whole team is awesome to work with. We're a family run operation. And it's kind of like anytime somebody comes in, they become part of the family. I mean, most of the people that I've been working with or that work with me, you know, we're going on like decades long relationships, you know, it makes a difference. The one thing that in the documentary I thought was cool, I wanted to point out is your dad's history on radio down in Shreveport. I didn't know about that. And I thought that was pretty cool. Pretty fascinating. Can you talk about that for a little bit about his history down there? Yeah, I mean, my dad was, you know, he was program director and general manager and on-air personality. Basically, any of the hottest radio stations in the market, you know, he was running them. So, I mean, I grew up around music 24-7. He was always listening because he was paying attention to what's going on at the station. He was the program director. He chose all the music and he was the general manager. So he was the boss of all the personnel. So he was always listening to music. We went to every concert that came through town, had tickets and backstage passes. You know how it goes. You always got to meet the radio guy because he's the one that's had your record. So I got to go meet all these bands, man. And I would see kind of behind the scenes of the touring life of the music industry. And I mean, what nobody realized, including myself, is that I was soaking all this stuff up and it was going to really shape and mold who I was going to become as an artist. Your covers are very much driven by personality, sort of like Stevie Ray. It's more like, fuck art, let's just dance, you know? And I get that from most of your covers that, you know, you've been well photographed, creatively photographed, but the covers are very simple. I found The Traveler was a bit more unique because it was a bit like the Hegera cover with Joni Mitchell, where you look into her clothing and you see her skating off into the distance. And there's sort of a, a depth to that image. How much does art matter to you? How much did it matter to you through your career? Uh, how much did it affect the way you bought albums even? Because some people really don't really care. They let the label take care of it. They let the PR people take care of it. Are you hands-on? or? I've always been in every aspect of it, even when I was young. Now, in the beginning, I would say the first album I was probably you know, had the least amount to contribute creatively because I'd never done it before, right? So I'm kind of like really seeking their guidance. I mean, if I didn't like something, I would certainly speak up, but, you know, I didn't know how things were done. But by the second album and moving forward, I've been incredibly hands-on in everything. And especially on the last three or four records, between me and like the last couple of albums have been uh, a friend of mine who's an artist. He's an actual painter right so like there's an album called going home and he came to my house unbeknownst to me he photographed me like sitting in my garage like playing guitar 
And then he went and he painted it like oil on canvas, right? And then he gave it to me as a gift. Uh, I think it was for Christmas or my birthday. And I never even knew uh, until he presented me with this gift. And I was like, dude, that that should be that should be the, an album cover, right? And, and it's like, you know, back in the day when like album covers were actual art pieces, you know, where somebody would actually craft an entire piece of art for a band's album cover. And so then I started collaborating with him and he did the traveler as well um, in the digital realm instead. And he did an album called laid on down where he did a charcoal rendering of me as well. So, but yes, I mean, I've kind of, I've had visions and I work with people that have have visions and, and, and we really try and work towards a unique end result for sure. That's good to know that you do that because it does get kind of tired and it's so easy to say, yeah, just put me on the cover with a name. And that works too, especially when you're good at what you do and you've got a following it kind of, you know, but this is a great painting. I'm looking at it now, the going home piece. It's lovely. I'm a painter myself, so I can relate to, you know, I don't always work in paint because it's so slow and it's so demanding. But so Photoshop has become my friend over the last 15, 20 years. The Traveler record, the lead vocals that you take are really great. They're totally different than what Noah does. It's a totally different style. You have a clean kind of pure thing uh like the song gravity which is a kind of a modern rock vibe i started singing on my fourth record that was called the place you're in but i still like even after that it, i was still kind of timid about singing a lot of lead vocals but then i put together a side project with steven stills and we had a side band called the rides and steven pushed me he was like you need to be singing in this band you need to sing half the songs. so you know i sang half the songs and then every night on, on the road i sang half the show and and then that really kind of gave, you know, pushed me into a position to really do it more frequently. And then that translated over into my own band. And then it became a thing where it's like basically on every record that we've put out since then, I'm singing like half the lead vocals and Noah singing the other half of the lead vocals. And our voices are very different. And so it gives us a broader range of songs and material that we can do it always fascinates me when i hear stories about how elton john hated his voice but he realized he was the only person that could carry the song even george martin would speak about how timid uh, lennon was singing around paul because paul had more uh, evolved chops but lennon was the one that broke your heart so yeah I, I was researching you and listening to your music over the last day or so and yeah noah was front and center on a lot of projects I kept waiting for something to come up where you sang. And when, when I finally heard you, clearly it's something you should do. And Stephen is right about that. It's something you should do more of. The band you mentioned was Stephen, The Rides. How did that come about? Like, where did that come from? Stephen wanted to do a blues band, basically. And him and this guy, Barry Goldberg, uh, Barry's a legendary guy from the 60s. He played in a band called Electric Flag with Mike Bloomfield and Buddy Miles. And then he was... You know, he was at Newport Folk Festival playing in Bob Dylan's band. The night Bob walked out with an electric guitar. I mean, he's a legendary guy, right? So the two of them got hooked up. They started writing some songs, but they felt like, we're, you know, I don't know if it's the whole like CSN thing where, you know, Stephen likes working with trios. I don't know. But they felt like they were missing. There was a missing element. And my name came up. Stephen and I met years and years ago going to football games with Jim Ursay because we're both friends with with Jim. And so we actually, Steven and I first played together at one of Jim's parties down at the Super Bowl in Miami, the year the Colts won the Super Bowl. So that was the first time Steven and I met and played together. And then who knew that, you know, years later, we'd have a band together. 
I saw the Ursay thing in Indianapolis uh, recently. It's cool to see everybody on stage. Buddy Guy is always a treat to see him come out. That's got to be a real thrill for you playing with Buddy Guy, yeah? Yeah, I've been playing with Buddy Guy most of my life, really, you know. 25 years ago, you know, you released an album called Trouble Is. We had pretty good success with that, I would say. So you're revisiting that record. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we wanted to really honor the 25th anniversary, you know, not just like do a social media post saying happy 25th anniversary to the record. It's like, this is a monumental record for us. I dare say it was a monumental record for the genre. It deserved more than just a quick little acknowledgement. And so I, I knew I wanted to do a tour where we played the whole record live because we never did that before. We never played the whole album. And then I thought, you know, well, let's go re-record the record. And uh, that'll set us up for the tour because then we'll be in the studio. We'll be relearning all this stuff in intimate detail. We'll be prepped for the tour. Then it'll give us a new version of the album that we can put out and celebrate and talk about. And then we included Bob Dylan's song called Ballad of a Thin Man that we ordered for the original, but it didn't make the album. So now it's like, hey, here's this song you never knew that we did. It was supposed to go on the record, but it didn't go on the record. Now it's on the new version. So that's kind of cool. And then we did the documentary film of the making of Trouble Is, where we go back and kind of tell the story of how it all came to be and, you know, the challenges it took just for us to even get into the studio to make the record. You know, we did that. And then we filmed the first night of the tour in my hometown of Louisiana in Shreveport. And so we have a live concert DVD. So we did all this stuff to really like acknowledge this occasion for really what it is. It's something very special. So we wanted to make something very special out of it. I mean, everybody looks back, you know, every musician I know looks back and thinks I could have done that differently. Or I could have played that better or whatever. Did you find by getting the opportunity to kind of revisit it that you thought, well, a lot of what I did was really good and I shouldn't change it? Or did you really want consciously to make a different and you had all the same guys too in the band right we did other than tommy was retired yeah i thought at first maybe this would be the opportunity that everybody hopes for where they can go back and fix things that bothered them but really the more i listen to it the more i'm going there's really nothing wrong with this record there was like one little mistake that kind of always stood out to me but but when it came down to it and we went in and re-recorded it i actually intentionally played the mistake did you really yeah so we did two versions like we did a faithful version of the record that's true to the original and then we did another version where we played the songs the way most of them have evolved after playing them on uh, on stage for 25 years and then i sat back and i listened to them and i go okay which one do we finish which one do we release? And Blue on Black was kind of the, the thing that got my attention because when I listened to it, the live version, if you will, of Blue on Black had just gotten too far away from the original. And there's such a vibe to that song that is so important and it didn't have the vibe. And I'm like, well, we're doing a disservice. How so had the live version gotten away? I had to find a way, which we're doing now, for me to be able to play the intro on acoustic and then go to, because I play acoustic and electric on the record. That really hasn't been possible up until now. And so I was playing, first of all, I was I would start the song with electric. So it's already coming at you harder than it should. And everybody else is kind of following that. And so it's just like, everybody's chugging away and it's just become, I don't know, it's just become more of a rock song instead of this really amazing- A different beast. And so I'm going, and I've had to push the reset button on that, on that song in particular a couple of times over the years where it's like, we've gotten so far away from the original. And so then we'll go back and we'll start playing it 
you know, like we should. And then it kind of starts to go this way again. But now we're playing it like the record live, which is great. And the people immediately identify and you see the reaction. So the vibe was incredibly important. And I thought, you know what? This is true for the whole record. The whole album has a certain vibe to it. And if we get too far away from that, people are going to be like, why did you mess with something that was already okay? So we got really true to the original and we did some subtle differences so that when you listen to the record, you put it on, your brain goes, oh, I know that album. That's Trouble Is. But then you're a little thing different on guitar, a little vocal delivery that's slightly different. And then you get your attention and then you go, oh, wait, I am. I'm having a new experience listening to, you know, but it doesn't alienate the original. And I would assume sonically that it's different. It's 25 years have gone by. So there's probably more low end in the record, I would assume, as a modern texture. I haven't been able to hear it on a big speaker. I heard it on a sound bar, the two songs that are available. But I would assume that sonically it's probably different, right? Well, it is, but I had the same amps, the same guitars, the same pedals. Thankfully, I still had all that stuff. So 90% of my guitar sound was was there. I think the biggest sonic I mean, is in the drums. We didn't have the same drum kit. We didn't put the drums under a microscope and like compare hi-hats and crashes and snare drums to try and get it exactly the same. I mean, we're in there to have fun. Did Chris use the Hubble kit on this? Chris used, I want to I know. I saw this thing where he places one bass drum in front of another, which is completely absurd looking, but it's, it's sonically something he recommends. Oh, it's a hollow shell in front of the other one? Something, but it was weird. It's just two two kicks in a row as opposed to side by side. No, he didn't use that. I mean, it was just more just like a traditional Ludwig style drum kit. When you play that song live with the acoustic guitar, is the acoustic on a stand? You get to walk away from it? Yes. And Noah's playing acoustic too. So then when I walk away from my acoustic to play the electric part, he's still playing. You know, I was watching the documentary and uh, there's the section there where they're talking about the songwriting relationship between Mark Selby, you, and Tia Sillers. She's talking about writing Blue and Black. And I think she said in that, if my memory serves me right, were you wearing like a blue and black shirt or something? Yeah. Had you not picked that shirt that day? It could be white on yellow, right? <laughs> I mean, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, that just goes to show. It's like a fascinating point because I didn't deliberately choose that shirt that well, I just woke up and put clothes on and walked out the door to go write a record. And here we are 25 years later talking about that. Right. But like down to the, to the shirt you might choose to put on today, you have no idea the trajectory, how that might influence the series of events that's going on. Who are you listening to these days? Who are your go-to artists? Do you know what, man? I don't know. I just, I kind of default to the stuff that like, that always inspires me. I mean, I listen to the old stuff. I mean, my son, my youngest son is really into classic rock right now. So like he, you know, when my other son is listening to, I don't even know what, I, he listens to more pop type stuff, but my youngest son gets in the car and immediately turns on like classic rock radio and he cranks up ACDC and ZZ Top and, you know, all that oh. stuff. So I'm just like enjoying listening to all that stuff with him, man. It's just so much fun. It you know, brings me back to listening to it with my dad, you know? I mean, he's 11 years old and he's like, hey, I think ACDC might be his favorite band. Nothing wrong with that. Good place to start right there. So you mentioned earlier the Jim Irsay project thing. When you guys did the thing in Indianapolis, the one thing I noticed, and I actually talked to some buddies that went with me afterwards, you as a band leader really impressed me. I didn't expect that. I knew you were in the band. I knew you'd be great. You'd play guitar and it would sound wonderful. But you, you as a band leader up there was really 
was really cool. What's that like for you being in that position with all those different people coming and going? I have to say, I mean, and I got to give credit where credit is due. I mean, Mike Wanchek is the musical director. So Mike really is the kind of glue that holds everything together. And he's the one that really makes sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so he does a lot of heavy lifting, but I guess to a degree, you know, especially uh, when we're on stage, you know, cause I have lead vocal responsibilities. I have guitar solo responsibilities. And then, you know, in particular with buddy guy, when he comes out, it's like, I'm kind of like steering the ship for that entire part of the show as well. So, I mean, I guess to, it does kind of come across at some points that I'm kind of like a band leader of sorts in that organization. But, you know, I just feel like that is such an incredible group of musicians. I mean, and not just the musicians, but the entire, all the people involved behind the scenes and everything. But everybody up there is so talented, man. It, it just takes so much pressure off because, you know, everybody's going to bring it. Everybody's got is more than qualified. And so if there's anything to worry about, you don't have to worry about the music because that's taken care of, you know, yeah. but I got to tell you, man, it's like, you know, Mike Wanchak and I are on one side of the stage and you got Tom Bukovac and Mike Mills on the other side of the stage. And so, you know, I, me and Mike really hear a lot of each other and those two guys over there hear a lot of each other, but I'm just, I got to tell you what, man. I mean, I've, I've known Mike a long time, but sitting there listening to him play every night that guy is so good he is he's just rock solid and his interpretation of the music and you know it's great when you hear a player who plays things that you just that, that are just so fundamental but he plays them in, in in such a unique way that i go wow i just never would have done that but it's so great you know he's such a good guy good player yeah mike mills is a great addition to that too that was cool to hear a couple rem songs which everybody mike's mike's an incredible bass player tom bukovac amazing guitar player kenny arnoff one of the greatest drummers on the planet i mean you know michael ramos amazing i mean it's just like the name after name after name everybody is more than qualified so it's just like everybody has so much fun i'm anxious to hear the whole record i've heard the two songs uh, true lies and ballad of a thin man so i can't wait to hear the rest man yeah it'll be good and you know i was gonna say what a great idea has anybody ever done this before recut their album 25 years later i'm scraping the back of my head i can't think of anybody what a cool idea taylor swift just recently had a pretty highly publicized uh album where she went back in and re-recorded it did a i mean it was so close to the original people were like digitally analyzing them to see if she actually did of course they were <laughs> yeah well that doesn't count to me i'm sorry but this is a different whole different thing this is rock music come on now sorry taylor but yeah people have done it um you know and uh, again i think one of the coolest things about it is which i haven't said to you guys but i've said previously is that you know i'm 25 years older right like i was 18 or 19 years old when this was all going down and you think about professional sports and it's like guys you know especially like football because i'm such a football guy it's like you know when you're in your 30s you know especially late 30s it's like you're old in the nfl you know they don't expect you to come close to the way you could perform in your 20s right uh, unless you're Tom Brady and even he's still not able to do that. Right. And, but as a musician, man, it's like, I'm 25 years older than I was then, but I can bring it just like I did when I was 19 years old all day. You know, now there'll be a point, there'll be a, there'll be a time I'll hit, I don't know if it'll be 65 or 70 or 80 or whatever. 
and time will catch up with me. But all I know is, is I'm 45 and, and I can still do it like I did when I was 19. And, and and probably better in ways, man, the things you've learned to do and not to do from when we were, you know, all of us, if we keep playing, I mean, and look at, look at buddy guy. Absolutely. He's still out rocking, man. I play, I'm 63. I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. I think time is probably the nemesis of drummers more than anyone in terms of the physicality. All the drummers that I've ever worked with always hit the gym for several months before they go out on tour just to get back into shape physically, you know? Yeah. I mean, playing music is a physical thing. Obviously it's not, it's not like getting flattened on a football field by those guys, but we have issues in other ways. It's like, I mean, the, the hearing loss and the ringing of the ears and, you know, the things and, or, you know, like every guitar player I know uh, has had to have this shoulder surgery or like, you know, Eddie Van Halen having his knees replaced, you know? And I mean, so there is, there's a lot of physicality in what we do as well. You don't jump off amps like Eddie did, I don't think, right? No, I was, no. I'd be the guy that would just like fall on my face. So I just never was pushing that, you know. What was the relationship in history there with Van Halen? Because you guys were, were, did you, were you on that whole last tour that they did? Yeah. Yeah. We did the, we did the entire last final Van Halen tour. So I toured with, uh, with Van Halen back in the 90s. And, um, you know, we have a, even a history beyond you know, the first tour I did with them, you know, my dad played a role in Valerie Bertinelli meeting Eddie Van Halen for the first time. Really? Okay. Wow. You know, I was always kind of suspect of that story. Like, you know, like, you know, how like stories can kind of take on a life of their own and you're like going, you know, I've heard this story so many times, how much of it is, is real. But, you know, I met her family, like her brothers and her, and her brothers, like we were doing a show together. My dad was there and Valerie's brother, one of her brothers was there and he was like, oh my gosh, Ken, you know, and he's like, do you know who this is? This is the guy that brought Valerie to her first Van Halen concert where she met Ed and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then at the last Van Halen show ever at Hollywood Bowl uh, in California in 2015, Wolfgang came. Uh, we were all kind of like saying, you know, thank yous and goodbyes and things like that. And my dad was there and Wolfgang introduced himself to my dad and he goes well i guess i owe you uh something you know for for my life i guess (laughs) whatever my dad oh no dude i had very little to do with that part of it you know or whatever but yeah it was really fascinating to watch all these conversations go down i've been hearing this story how long are your shows Uh, are you one of these people that are hard to get off stage or do you have a pretty set it depends on the on the show but right now we're doing the tour we're doing is the trouble is 25th anniversary tour so we're playing the whole album from you know start to finish in a slightly different order and then we come off for and we come back for an encore for the encore we do a whole other set of songs from various albums that we've put out since trouble is so that's a two hour long show so if we have an opener which we a lot of times we take opening bands out you know to help give really we've been focusing on young up-and-comers to help give them a platform but usually if we have an opener then you know they'll they play, you know, I don't know, 30 to 45 minutes, and then we'll play 90 minutes, you know. Um, but the trouble is, what we're doing right now is a, a good two-hour night. Well, congratulations. Thanks again for joining us today, Kenny. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been nice talking with you. Oh, yeah.